Welcome to the Innate Flow Podcast, a vibration in the time-space continuum, communicating the wisdom, reflection, and awareness direct from the mouths of authentic truth seekers and spiritual warriors. These conversations are empowered dispatches, co-created to uncover how we as individuals can move into healing our collective consciousness in a holistic and intuitive way. Sit back, quiet the mind, and open the heart as we integrate the here and now. Brooks Meadows is a man that for me embodies free-spirited play and a joy for life like no one I have ever met. He is the host of Serious Fun the podcast. He has most recently launched the Chop Club for Men alongside the great chopper Dave Robinson to help busy men take ownership over their health without sacrificing their business or family time. This king of play has a roguish charisma that belies the deep wisdom he has around movement and health. Brooks, welcome to the Innate Flow podcast, my brother. To the Innate founder himself it is an honor to be here with you meeting you in person at the strong coach summit was memorable to say the least <laughs> so i was uh, stoked to hear that you had a show and that you wanted to have me i'm here very cool to to jump right in with the softball question who is brooks meadows and why is he here on this earth you call that a softball question? <laughs> Who is Brooks Meadows and why is he here? Um, well, one, I am here to have fun and to enjoy my life. I think that's why we're all here if we choose it and we claim it. I'm here to enjoy my life. And so uh, who I am is an unfolding process of enjoying my life. <laughs> um, the highlights of... My physical vessel is I was given a name, Brooks Alexander Meadows. I was born on the 5th of September in 1986. I came through the portal and I entered uh, this, this earthly plane. And, uh, you know, recently, this is, a, this is a great way to start. So I recently, I asked both of my parents the same question. And I have a great relationship with both of my parents to say that the relationship doesn't have its own highs and lows and challenges. You know, I want that to be named. Uh, and I have a great relationship with my parents. I have two supportive, loving parents who have their own opinions and have their own viewpoint of who I am as a person. And so uh, sometimes it's really, I like to play a game. I like to play games where I do things that are typically uncomfortable for me and I get to explore my edges with games. And so having my parents tell me what they think is, is a very resistant point in my life. So what I did was choose to make it into a game uh, because now that there's a game, I can win, I can lose. Well, the winning in this case was receiving what they had to say with no judgment, just actively trying to see my parent reflecting back to me, the answer, their honest answer to the question that I asked. And the question was of all of my life, what is, what is one thing that I've always done really well. And I left it at that. Both of them with no hesitation, they go, 
telling stories. <laughs> One of my favorite stories that my mom used to tell, and my father, I guess, was that they used to have friends over to our house. We were a pretty social family. Both families came from social families, so we like to have friends over. I said from three years old, three years old into now on this day in, in, in Earth time, I have been talking and telling people stuff <laughs> for what seems to be my own enjoyment. Okay. <laughs> so I tell stories to experience and enjoy life. Both of my parents see it. It's the one thing that they could agree on about me, it seems, is that I tell great stories and tell stories and have been doing it my whole life. And so uh, I'm here to enjoy my life. The way that I'm doing that right now is I have created and co-founded a coaching mastery program with my buddy, Dave Robinson, which you so eloquently told people in the intro to this show. And it's about health mastery. And if there's one thing that I feel very confident about as a 35-year-old man is that like this is what health looks like. I'm a healthy person. I have mastered my health. Uh, and that's what I have to share with people is to teach them how to do the same thing. Um, the way I do that and the way that I enjoy doing that is by telling stories, telling my personal story and my own personal um, uh, path to achieving health mastery, why that's important to me. I had a father who experienced some very uh, what should have been terminal illnesses um, so health became something that I was very interested in, if no for other reason, as I didn't want to repeat uh, any possible paths that I saw play out in front of me. Um, but I also like to tell other people's stories because there's a lot to learn from telling someone else's story because in a, any good story, there's a good lesson. I learned that lesson from another great storyteller named Kyle Gray. I was doing a retreat with Kyle Gray in Colorado in 2020. And I was like, dude, I try to get to the softball questions myself. I said, what's the one thing you ask all of your clients? And he said, what's the one thing you tell all your clients? Excuse me. And he said, if you're going to go through the hassle of telling a good story, make sure that you're delivering a lesson. And that night I took a piece of paper it's right over here on my altar. I took a piece of paper and I wrote down four acts of a story that I have told ever since I experienced it. It's a fun bar story. It was something that I knew would get a lot of laughs. People tended to find the punchlines and the capstone and the, and the peaks of the story very interesting. But I realized every time I told it, it was only for entertainment. I was never trying to deliver a lesson. And it hit me in that moment what the lesson is. The lesson is that if you are going to try to say yes to your most fun life, if you're going to, well, I don't know, let's pick another word. If you're going to touch your dharma, if you're going to be able to understand your, your, your soul's thumbprint on this earth, there's going to be predictable things that happen along that path. Some call it the hero's journey. I have my own experiences. What I realized is that I was, we were working on uh, building our, our, our highest royal self, the, the king archetype that weekend. And what was born was my one-man storytelling performance called The King Says Yes, which you got to experience at the Strong Coach Summit. So to round out my answer to your first softball question, Nate, <laughs> uh, I am a mystic. I am a storyteller 
And my profession is that I coach men how to be healthy. Paul Check quotes someone, I forget who, in saying myths are something that never happened and are always happening. And in in the levity that you bring as you were talking about, you know, speaking with your parents and pushing a little bit of a fear edge, that that is when we get to, you know, ultimately be in that space of joy of moving into this space of like not knowing exactly what's going to come up, what is what things your parents are going to respond and to bring that levity to that little bit of fear creates such a fun myth creates such a fun myth that we can keep repeating and evolving from the hero's journey that you were talking about. And within the hero's journey, there is that initial fracturing of consciousness, fracturing of the the first identity into a second, more expansive identity. What in your reflection on your life was that initial shift in your ego of leaving the old, moving into the new? I have so many examples, but I will stick to two. I'm going to tell you the exact answer, and then I'm going to also make an analogy of another area of my life where I found this to be true. So the, the, the big breakout moment for me is the moment that I traveled abroad with my friend Sam for the first time. I had done a school trip the the summer before, the the spring before. It was an out-of-the-country trip, but it was facilitated by my university. This trip was me and a friend, just us, in a second-world country where the rules are, are a bit blurry, and it's obvious that we're tourists. So that was like, oh, wow, the world is different than I thought. That's the big, that was like the huge shift that just uh, catapulted me into a new reality. But I, in my profession, I've thought about this thing that you're describing, the break, the fracturing of the first identity. And the way that I've uh, been able to put a mind structure around that is to think about it in as a five portal experience. Okay. Portal number one is the, what I call the dogmatic we. This is when you're growing up, you're taught all of the dogma of the group. This is who we are. This is what we believe. And this is how we act. That could be your church. It could be your family unit. It could be your school. It could be your nation state where you are from. But you are given a set of dogmatic beliefs that operate in the we. When I became a CrossFitter, I joined the dogmatic we. That's what you go through. This is who we are. This is what we believe. And this is what we do. And I followed that path pretty far. But it didn't take me long before I realized, okay, this is who we are. This is what we believe. And this is what we do. But I clearly have my own exceptions that need to be addressed. But I'm still a CrossFitter. So I move from portal one to portal two in my understanding, which is the dogmatic I. I have needs. I am an individual and I am operating. I'm still part of the we. I'm just tailoring it to uh, my personal needs. 
if you have done CrossFit, you've likely adopted the belief that somehow you have found the best methodology in the game. And many times you believe that because you were taught in the first portal, the dogmatic we portal, that you were the best and that this was the best. And in fact, this was the only path to virtuosity to a degree. But then if you're curious, and this is the part, curiosity is the key to go from portal two to portal three here. If you're curious, you'll start looking and start questioning whether or not that fundamental belief that this is the best and one and only way is actually true. And if you scratch at that long enough, you will very quickly, well, maybe not so quickly, but you will find out eventually that there are almost an endless number of methodologies and paths that will take you to the same point. And all of the things that you had banked on believing that you thought mattered are now no longer relevant. In fact, nothing matters. Portal number three is the nihilist or nihilist phase. Shit. You telling me that all that stuff that I believe isn't actually true? You're telling me that none of that actually matters? Oh, God. And this is a delicate space because it's necessary and you can get lost and stuck in portal number three and begin identifying as I don't matter. Since none of this matters, I don't matter. It's dogmatic. It's 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 nihilistic. Like, damn, uh, all those beliefs that I had, they don't, they don't, they don't actually apply. But there is a fourth portal and there's a way out. And this is what I call the non-dogmatic I, which is go, hmm. Okay, I get it now. There is no one right path. And there is no inherent meaning in any of it unless I choose it. Because one of my sovereign rights is that I get to choose what's important to me. That, my friend, is portal number four. I have chosen, not because it matters to anything else, but because I am. Because I live, I can choose that this matters. I can choose that my marriage matters. Not just my marriage, my marriage to that other person. That one person matters because I say so, not because the world says so, not even because she says so, because I choose what is meaningful for me on this plane. I. But shit, if I matter, we matter. We matter. This experience that we're having, the fact that we're alive, awake, and can actually register it and can have a conversation about it, that fucking matters. We matter. But we only get to the non-dogmatic we if we go through the other portals, because that is the portal five. It's the return in, in tarot. They, it's the number 21 in the major. It's the return to the all, the universe card, the world card, whatever uh, tarot deck you have. Number 21 is the reintegration with the all. We matter.
So does that answer your question? (laughs) Boom. I love that. Yes, it does. And one of the ways that I found in fast tracking the expansive mindset from the eye where you're focusing on your own needs, you're focusing on, you know, building yourself up, finding that space for self-love, self-acceptance, self-awareness to really seeing where you fit within this integral community of people who you support and support you to that universal consciousness, that, you know, awareness that we are all just drops within this ocean are plant medicines, psychedelics, entheogens. How, how have plant medicines, how have your exploration of plant medicines supported you in moving from this dogmatic eye to the universal, to the, the fifth portal. In my, in my experience, it's been an integral, integral part. Um, sometimes by accident, sometimes by choice or by it with intention. Um, I, let's go with the story. I was, introduced to cannabis when I was 12 years old. It was not in the best way necessarily or the safest way, but it also was innocent. So there wasn't danger rust, but if you had to pick on the first way you'd get introduced to cannabis, it probably wouldn't be smoking it on top of like a hollowed out Coke can Cause you don't have a piece, you know, smoking a, a aluminum or whatever. Like I, I wouldn't do it that way. And so in that sense, it was like innocent, but, uh, so it, you know, it wasn't harmful necessarily, but it wasn't the optimal way I was introduced when I was 12. I went to a, a private high school that drug tested and things like that. So, uh, although it might've occurred or came into my space when I was in, um, high school, it wasn't, it wasn't very prominent in my life. Um, college, the same, I was, it was offered, uh, but not necessarily used all that often. Um, but on the trip, uh, in the story, the King says, yes, I go to Jamaica. It's my second trip out of the country. We go to Jamaica and that, that is the culture. It's part of the culture. It's why many people travel there. It's like clearly why we're there to a degree is to experience all that Jamaica has to offer. And that included cannabis and that experience of cannabis in Jamaica on the trip. It was just all expansive, all mind blowing, all heart opening, all third eye opening. Didn't know what that was, but the the insight, the connection to the divine was, was present and activated on this trip. And then, um, cannabis has become a consistent part of my life since then. And I've had my own ups and downs with it. I have, uh, I leaned on it too much and asked it to provide things that it couldn't provide. And I've also learned how to respect the medicine and use it as a fuel um, for my vessel. And cannabis is the plant medicine outside of food uh, that you consume because food is plant medicine. I would like people to uh, understand that there's a full spectrum of plant medicine. Um, I imagine you're, Frequent listeners will will have either known this or will have learned this by now, and it's worth being said again: food is plant medicine. Not all plant medicines are psychedelic. Uh, many plant, most plant medicines aren't. 
Uh, and there are some that are, and cannabis is one of them. And whatever reason, the, the psychoactive components of cannabis and my body love each other. Not the case for everybody. My body loves it. It's a great fuel for me. It's a, it's a great vessel. Um, it is, to speak on the mystic side, I want to I talk about mysticism for a second, but, but I'm, let's stay on, stay on the, the topic, which is the, the plant medicine journey. But I really do want to talk about mysticism. Um, but I'll just say this about mystics. There's many different like archetypes and roles that we could play. Uh, and, and, you know, healers, mystics, these are all just roles that have existed for as long as there have been people. Um, some are clairvoyant, some are clairaudient. There's all these different skills and, and traits that any human could experience. Um, my particular dharma or role to play here is I get to be a mystic. And mystics, by definition, go into altered states of consciousness, gather information from beyond the veil, and come back to deliver it to, the, to, to other people. Okay, so that's a role that a mystic plays. Um, there's so many different types of mystics. There's so many different types of altered states. Okay. I'd like, you know, some use music, some use dancing, some use breath, some use cannabis, psilocybin, LSD, whatever. Uh, there's many different ways to work yourself into altered states of consciousness, not all of which require anything outside of your own personal experience. I want to make that very clear. Uh, is that everybody gets to have their own tools and use them how you want. This is the best part. You can build your own garage toolkit however you decide you want to do that. So, uh, well, the my relationship to cannabis has gotten much stronger once I understood that it was a fuel for me as a mystic to enter that altered state of consciousness, go get the information that I need and is worth bringing back and, and then delivering it to myself or whomever is in need of the message. But there was one particular case, a time where I was on in the, uh, using the plant medicine psilocybin, and I, I had had a few experiences with it. This one was elevated and likely will be understood by anyone that has experienced this before. But there is some backstory to this, which is I had a friend. I won't say her name, but she was like, hey, listen, before you open your gym, this is 2017, 18 era, you need to trip on psilocybin two times, she said. You need to do it twice. I was like, why twice? She was like, because I like she kind of felt like compelled to tell me to do it twice. OK, cool. So she uh, hooks me up with her connection and uh, he is very um, kind and safe. And hey, have you ever, you know, what's your relationship to this, this, and this? What's your relationship to that? Okay, great. And he introduces me with what he considered an, uh, an introductory dose. And I had a, a wonderful time, very heart opening, very lovey. I enjoyed myself. I wrote my journal and I had the music on and I had some berries. And it was just like, oh, life is awesome. Uh, but I didn't do it a second time. I had done some microdosing here and there, but. Almost a year later, I was like, right, I never did, I never did it again. I'm like, okay, I, I'm ready to go back. And this time it was like, okay, then you're going to get like a proper dose. So 3.5 grams, here you go. Like, you know, do you feel safe to go through this experience? Yes. Do you have the support you need? Yes, that I do. So I decided to take a Saturday, 
and uh, it was springtime. I was living in a marvelous house that uh, had a deck built off like a screened in porch off of our lofted bedroom. And it was just like, I'm in nothing but forest and trees and it's natural. And I got my palette and I'm having this experience. And uh, there was just like a moment where it was like, oh, this is different. Okay. What's different about it? Well, if you ever watch the show Home Improvement, there was the neighbor who you could only see his eyes. He would always come up to the fence. And so you knew he was there, but you could only see his eyes. But if you see someone like that, it's implied that the rest of their body is still there. It's just behind the fence. I'm not just looking at a top of a head. This is making sense to people. I, I know it's implied that there's a human behind it. Okay. Imagine that, but there is no fence. It's just a rip in space time where I see someone pop out from a cosmic fence, but there is no fence, but it's implied that there's a being that has looked over some barrier in space time. Just like the guy was looking at the neighbor over the fence, just like that, just like a spiritual spirit looking over a fence at this human that was having this experience. And I was like, dude, I recognize you. I have seen these eyes. And there was just a hand gesture. It was like a, it was like a hand gesture that I'd seen somewhere before and I couldn't quite figure it out. And then I couldn't figure it out. Cause now I was like, Oh shit. Uh, I've gone like full ego death at this point. It's like, wow, the human is hungry. Ha 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 ha. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, the body wants to eat. <laughs> so I'm like going downstairs and I'm bopping around and I'm having fun. And I can see my wife's like beautiful aura. It's like this blue and green, um, almost like mermaid got some purple splashed in there. And there were just like all these wonder, you know, the sacred geometry and you know, all the, you, you take all the signs and then like boop, switch flips. And I just start being delivered information. Now the person who introduced me was like trying to explain, you know, like when you step through the veil, this is before I'd experienced it. Uh, you know, like when you're doing psilocybin and you like step through the veil and I'm like, I don't, I don't know what that means. Uh, and, and she was like, oh, you don't. And like, you're, and it's just, and I said, I'm, I don't know. But in that moment, I was like, oh shit, I have, I am here. I am beyond the veil. And actually I've been here before. In fact, I've been here before. I just didn't have language to describe my experience. I had been there in Jamaica. I had been there when I was living in Korea. I had been through the veil as a mystic without knowing that that's what I was doing. And cannabis had taken me there more frequently than anything else. That when I finally was there, I realized this is what has been happening. It's what is happening and what has been happening for quite some time. And that moment, having plant medicine in a way affirm my experience previous to cannabis and previous to any of these things where I had stepped through the veil just as a human <laughs> with no uh, chemical induced states. For me, it has acted as an affirmation of my spiritual self because it allowed me to crack through a lot of the programming that had been laid over the top of me for so many years. And it gave me access to find my way back. 
And part of the information that I received on that journey was, this is not where you come to find out who you are. You already know who you are. And I thought about it and I was like, I do. I know who I am. I know what I am and I know how I serve other people. People have described me as self-assured or confident in certain cases. And it's like, I couldn't put my finger on what it was. It's because I know who I am. I don't have the, I didn't have the soul tension that other people carry around that many times plant medicine allow them to access. I had already accessed it. This just affirmed my experience. And it was like, okay, don't use this to try to figure out who you are, but you can come back and play. But I didn't listen to that the first time. And I was like, I'm doing it again. Next time I'm going five grams, bro. I'm going bigger. And I did. I got the same thing. Five grams thinking Terrence McKenna, five grams in a small, like a dark, dark, silent room is where the rubber meets the road, you know? And I'm like, I'm ready to go. And I took it. Nothing happened. In fact, I got a splitting headache that lasted me for 72 hours. That was the only thing that happened, except for the message. We told you this is not where you go to find out who you are. You did that with the intention of going to, and we just are just reminding you, this is not it. This is not it. Um, so I have had many experiences with plant medicines. I've also had an experience with uh, San Pedro, which was super heart opening and an amazing experience. Uh, again, another affirmation of who I already was. And so if I, uh, if I am anything, if I, if I have a relationship with plant medicine, it is mostly I uh, live in a state where you can grow your own cannabis. It is legal to grow your own cannabis and we grow it with love. And every now and again, it helps me peek through the veil when I desire it and when I really want to go for it. Something that Alan Watts said that relates very deeply to your five gram experience is once you get the message, hang up the phone. <laughs> and I, I have been for the past two and a half years on a deep dive with particularly psilocybin and LSD. And six weeks ago, I actually, the last day of the retreat was my, the last time I sat with psilocybin and received the message as I step deeper into facilitating this work, take a break. Allow yourself to step back and to be in a space of connection absent the medicine. And these, these past six weeks or four weeks, rather, I've been in Taos, New Mexico. And in Taos, New Mexico, there are some amazing clothing optional hot springs. And each Saturday, I have been taking the two-mile trail run out to these hot springs and sitting with some cannabis, along with some Alex Rupchinsky's Primal Fusion Dream Vision Herbs, mixing them up and sitting with that medicine and allowing that to allow what comes up to be the medicine. And a lot of that for me, I, I'm very sensitive to THC. So a lot of what comes up is often paranoia, is often feelings of anxiety, and have been using this as the dojo for my limiting beliefs. 
to shift, to move, to really go through that analysis of allowing these to be the mirror of things that I may not be conscious to when I'm not through the veil that I then get to integrate and show up more fully for my clients in recognizing these things when I am, you know, without the medicine, when I am fully, you know, in my quote unquote sober mind. And that, that has been healing for me. And this last weekend did my trail run, sat with the medicine, was in the hot spring. And if you're familiar with gratitude popcorn, the concept, it is when you allow a thought to come up, deep breath, thank you. Thanking the thought. You see a rock, thank you. You see a bird, thank you. And it's a meditative practice for gratitude, coming back to each thought. And it just, it wasn't like, I'm going to do gratitude popcorn. It was just like bubbling up out of me. And I'm curious in using cannabis as a mystic to take you through the veil into this space to pull back the wisdom that you can then integrate. What wisdom has been showing up for you that you then get to bring to the we, to your community, to your clients in, you know, that aim, in that dharma of healing people? The simplest message is say yes to who you really are. The only way that an individual or a group changes the world is by saying yes to who you really are. To make change in the macro, we must change the micro. So if I am not ready to say yes to who I really am, it is hard for me to expect or to bring or to invite others into saying yes to who they really are. Now, then the question is like, well, Brooks, <laughs> how do you say yes to who you really are? It's the, beg, it's the question that begs when you say something like that. And the truth is, is that only you know who you really are. I can tell you the way that I have discovered who I really am and continue to discover who I really am. I'd like to make it very clear that I don't know if that will ever be a finished process or product. I don't know if I'm like, yep, that is all that I am. I've said yes to all of it. I don't know. I haven't gotten there yet. My guess is that I won't ever get there or that who I am will be in an ever evolving state and I will be discovering and rediscovering who I am over and over again. But what I will say in this case is that if you start to say yes to who you are, you're going to go through some predictable phases. The first phase is that you're going to notice that there is an itch it's your intuition saying, I am not saying yes to who I really am, question mark. <laughs> There's going to be like a lot of maybe I don't have it all figured out. Or I'll like go up. And you go, okay, there's something, to, there's something to scratch at here. 
But then you go, oh shit, like I'm ready for a change. Okay. I want to start saying yes. And the first thing is like, you start, uh, you start saying no to stuff. That's not you. And that's, that's the easy part. Like you stop taking invitations to things you don't like to go to. So I don't really like to drink alcohol that much. So I stopped accepting as many invitations to bars. Okay. That's saying yes to who I am. Uh, by honoring and acknowledging what does and doesn't serve me anymore. But if you are really going to make a change, it's going to require risk. You are going to have to navigate uncertainty. This is an important concept. You're like, well, I'm always navigating uncertainty, but not like this. You're not. This is like navigating the uncertainty of sailing across the ocean as opposed to navigating the uncertainty of, will I see my neighbor when I walk out to get my mail? Okay. These are very two different things. All right. So if you're really going to say yes to who you really are, if you're going to say yes, you are going to have to say yes in an uncertain set of circumstances. So for me, and the king says, yes, Sam presents me with an opportunity uh, to, he's like, dude, if you, if, if you say, uh, if you say you're good for it, I'll buy your ticket. You know? And I'm like, I don't know if I can buy the ticket. That's the uncertain part, but I say yes. Right. It's like, because I want to change who I am. I want to change my experience. And this is telling me something about this trip is like, you need to go on this and yes, it's uncertain, but you can do it. Like you, you have to say yes. That's the first stage. Then you say yes. And you make a plan. There's always a plan. If you're going to actually make big change in your life, like newsflash, you sh- emphasis on should. You should be planning to some degree, okay? You should be making a plan. And once you make the plan and you start executing that and the plan starts mixing with the real world, the second thing you're going to realize is that your plan will not go identically according to plan. You are going to be hit with new things that you couldn't have predicted before you started, and it's how you navigate this climate that continues to push you along your journey. Okay, you've taken the risk, you've said yes, you've made the plan, you're feeling confident, you get slapped in the face, something takes you off your plan, now what are you going to do? Are you going to grip and clutch to your plan? and watch it slowly get ripped right out of your fingertips? Or are you going to let go and make a new plan? And in the, in the journey and the story, well, you know, I might imagine we, we make a new plan. <laughs> we make a new plan and the story keeps going. Um, but then you've started saying no to things that you know that you don't like anymore. Step number three is where you start to say no to things that you like. The things that you really would like to do, man, that sounds so much fun, dude. In this community, we get two or three invites a month to something that's awesome. Okay. You physically couldn't say yes to all of it, even if you wanted to, which means you're going to have to learn to say no to things, even if you like them. Saying yes to who you are gets to a point where you have to start cutting out things that still are not serving your one or two highest desires on this earth. There are three or a four and you love three and four, but that's not one and two. So I have to say no. 
I had to say no recently. My brother, so I just recently launched uh, Chop Club. We did a launch event. It was awesome. It was on a Thursday at noon Eastern. June, what was it, April? April 21st was the launch date. On April 11th, I got a call from my brother. He's a freshman at University of Arkansas. And he was like, dude, I totally forgot. I bought us tickets to go see Joe Rogan do stand-up at his 420 show in Fort Worth, Texas on 420, bro. Are you in? And I was like, hell yeah, I'm in. And then it occurred to me, fuck, my launch is the day after. The closest, I need, I need a studio. The closest studio that I know that I can get into for something like this is Austin. So I'd have to go to the show and the show's going to end at like 1030. I need to drive to Austin that night because I don't want to risk getting caught in traffic in the morning. And da, 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 da. I'm like trying to figure out how to, how to do it all. You know, oh, well, then I need to get a place over here and I can do this. And uh, yeah, of course, I'm going to go to Paleo FX the next weekend and I'm going to do this. and I'm going to do that. I'm trying to say yes to everything. And it's stressing me the fuck out because <laughs> these are all things that I want to do, especially the Joe Rogan stand up thing. It's like a freaking uh, bucket list item for me personally as a performer to see this dude do his thing. I chose to say no, because the thing that I'm a yes to more than that Joe Rogan show right now is my business and my partnership with Dave. I want to honor that. I want to be present. I want to do a good job. And like it would require me to say no to that, to, to be able to do that job very well. And so I said no, even when I wanted to say yes. So you track and these are, these are three distinct steps. One is taking the risk and just deciding to like let go of whatever's been keeping you back, whether that's you think somebody's going to judge you or you might fail or, you know, you you probably will fail. And that's part of the learning process. But okay, I get it. It's, it's, a, it's a hurdle to get started. But once you get over that hurdle, you'll make the plan. You'll be fired up. You'll try to execute the plan. Something will break. You get to choose to try to stick to the old plan, or you can see reality and see that you need to do the plan again. And then you get really good at it. People start inviting you to all kinds of awesome things. And eventually, you're going to have to learn to say no to things that are really awesome. And when you do that, I imagine, because I'm not quite there yet, when you do that, you reach a, a new tier to mastery, which is effortlessness. You just start, it's, it's like the same, you're, you know, you're getting all the things that you like, but there's a lot more ease. And it was hard for me to say no to the Joe Rogan thing. I hadn't hit that level of ease. I was still trying to work through it. But the ease is, is being able to let go because life is happening all the time. There's going to be awesome things. There's going to be not so awesome things. You could be here tomorrow or not. Life is happening. And can you operate in ease? Uh, I'm still working towards that level of mastery and my own personal experiences is ease. It's the surrender of the surrender experiment, right? It's, 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 it's just the, uh, like we did before the show, you know, just the, you're up here, you're up here. Ah, uh, that's where we're trying to go. Straight up. And within that, it, I imagine has been very crucial for you to get clear on what your values are around your time, around your money, around your finances, so that making that decision that is a fuck yes versus just a yes becomes so much easier 
and you know where to put your time for maximum impact based on your dharma. And you spoke of uncertainty. And in March of 2020, we went into this global space of uncertainty, of risk. And there was a lot of collective fear there. And, you know, we experienced deep levels of formation psychosis. And there's this, you know, fear virus entering the field, the veil. As someone you know, who I respect as being someone who really epitomizes this level of sovereignty and ownership over themselves, what was your experience of moving into and through that collective energy? Risk is something that is tolerated. Uh, my background academically is business economics and in economics uh especially in in strategy as well you build risk portfolios anybody that is in the finance industry or has a 401k you get to choose your level of risk tolerance for your investments higher risk typically have higher yields lower risk typically have lower yields you're looking for uh, high yield, low risk is the optimal investment. Has a very high yield with a very low risk and a very high risk with a very low yield. It's the last thing that you want. And somewhere in between is your personal risk tolerance. Okay. What the pandemic highlighted was the average risk tolerance of the individual. And those that have been practicing risk tolerance had a much different perspective and experience than those who avoid risk tolerance. What, you, what I learned is that the large majority of people, educated or not, are very risk averse. They're very risk averse and they don't do a lot of thinking for themselves. So when they are told that the risk is really high and are also told at the same time is that you are not capable of assessing your own risk and you're also not capable of assessing your own belief about what's going on, then the byproduct of that was a lot of people who fell in line, okay? Um, something that is also uh, potent to my own personal experience with all of this is that I lived in South Korea. I lived there from 2009 to 2014, give or take some months. I was back and forth. When I moved there in 2009, uh, I used public transportation a lot. And every cold and flu season, I would see people wearing masks on the subway. Why? Because in a city of 25 million metropolitan people, Seoul, you get into public transportation, it's pretty tight. And your face is pretty close to another human being. And it is definitely clear that if I am in close proximity with someone with a respiratory disease, 
I am very likely to get said respiratory disease like a cold or flu. Very simple, doesn't need a lot of thinking behind it. So when the information came out and the information was, this is a respiratory virus, it can be spread through your respiratory thing. You need to wear this mask. I was like, no problem. This makes sense to me. Yeah. Until they said, don't wear the masks. Until they said, do wear the masks. Until I was like, okay, they seem to be saying that the experts in this field, the, the personal protective equipment field are medical doctors. And I also know that that's not accurate because there's an entire industry around industrial safety. And if there's any person on the planet that understands personal protective equipment, it's people in that industry, people who go into nuclear plants and need to make sure that they don't get fried. Those people know about personal protective equipment. So I'm going to go find the people that are really smart in this area. And I'm going to find the information for myself because I know how to do that. And they said anything less grade than a KN, KN95 mask is going to have no impact on this respiratory virus because it's so small. And that's all I needed to hear. Yet we were told that anything over our face was okay. But like it wasn't. You know, it was, in fact, there's a very particular standard for this particular virus, and that was KN95, period, period, period. And it better be suctioned to your face tight. Otherwise, if there's airflow, it can get in. Like, that's just a fact. Okay, cool. So, what I'm getting at is I saw what happened to be many things. One, I, I noticed that people are risk averse and they, once they, uh, because they're risk averse, when the risk when their risk tolerance is surpassed, they go into a state of fear where they are not critically thinking. So the second thing I realize is that there are people on this planet that are intentionally taking advantage of putting people into that state. And in our friendship group, we have a lot of people who are coaches with an organization called Enlifted. The Get In Get In Lifted podcast. Shout out Get In Lifted podcast. My partner Dave is an Enlifted Level Three coach. So they talk about practical mindset and their four step process for getting people into a, a doing story work. Okay. Well, what a lot of coaches that come into that don't realize is that that information um, is from a different tree of knowledge. It's from the it's from like a whole different industry. In fact. Um, so marketing and language, like this stuff that we're learning in the coaching industry through the get and through get through and lifted is information that existed for a long time in other industries. It has just been brought to the fitness industry. Many of the people are discovering for the first time and context, that's the micro contextually, people don't realize that this is a field of study that has been decades in the making. And there are experts in things like neuro-linguistic programming. There are experts who can literally replace and implant ideas in your mind and make you believe that that's what you wanted in the first place. If you don't believe me, go look up Darren Brown on YouTube and look at the episode that he did with Simon Pegg, who's another famous British guy. He had Simon Pegg come onto a show. He had Darren Brown. He's a, he's a street magician. Okay, I want to make this clear. He's a quote street magician. This is I was looking this up in 2010. Okay, I want to make this clear. I saw Darren Brown bring on Simon Pegg 
and convinced Simon Pegg that what he wanted for Christmas was a red BMX bike. And he was like, this is what I want. I definitely want a red BMX bike. And Darren Brown was like, yeah, I want you to know this might startle you. That's probably not what you wrote down before you came here. Okay. You probably want something else. But what I've done is that I've convinced you that you wanted this subconsciously. And I've even replaced the memory of you having wanted the other thing in the first place. He was like, no, man, I know I want the red BMX bike. He opens up the envelope. It's a brown leather jacket or whatever, you know, and he had completely forgot that he wrote this down. Okay. There are people like Darren Brown that exist in this world and they work for governments and they work in department departments called nudge departments. And their entire job is to use those same skills to subconsciously nudge you into a behavior that you didn't choose. And they think it's for your benefit. They exist. They're on this planet and they are executing their plan at a very high level. This is not a conspiracy theory. Okay. To theorize on something means that I can't prove it. I can actively prove that there are people conspiring to get you to take action that you don't want. And they have convinced you that that's what you wanted because they scared you enough to nudge you. Do you see what I'm getting? You see what I'm saying? So that's also what I saw coming straight from. I've known this stuff exists. It's not, though, it's not surprising to me that it exists. What surprised me was the scale at which it was being executed. I couldn't fucking believe it. And there was an incident that happened to me that it was like, oh, things are different. Can I tell you about that? Please. Great. I read a newspaper article. I was primed to agree with it. The headline said, former Nazi concentration camp officer found and deported from Tennessee. I'm from Tennessee. Caught my headline. You guys found a fucking Nazi hidden away somewhere in Tennessee? Good. Good riddance. Let me see what this article has to say. Scrolling around. It's like, okay. Uh, wait a second. I just, it, it just said that he's not a Nazi. Okay. So the, so the headline says former Nazi concentration camp officer. They use the magic word Nazi. I made the assumption that he was a Nazi. He wasn't a Nazi. By fact of the court. What happened is that there was a man, a German man. The war started when he was probably 12, maybe 13. And when he was 18, the war was in full swing. The World War II was in full swing. And if you were a man of any European or Western nation at 18, your ass was going to the military, period, period, period. But not all German military were Nazis. Nazis was a special group that was operating separately and had control over this. This is important. He was a German Navy man scrubbing the fucking deck. You feel me? Lowest on the totem pole. Gets drafted because he had to be. He worked on a Navy battleship. 
Then when the Germans were nearing the end of their rope, their reign had to start centralizing because they had reached out and now they're getting driven back. And now the whole full collapse is happening. The allies are closing down on the Nazis. Okay. Which means that the Germans were pulling everyone back and they pulled this guy back and we're like, Hey, we have all these prisoner of war camps. So when you hear Nazi concentration camp in the picture, the picture that they showed was Auschwitz, the worst of the worst. This guy wasn't at Auschwitz. He wasn't even close to Auschwitz. He wasn't even in a real concentration camp. He was in a prisoner of war camp with Soviets, with Westerners, and he was a guard. He refused to carry a weapon. And when the Germans forced that camp closed and they moved him somewhere else, people died along the way. This man didn't kill them. He was present. People died because it was wartime and it was in the middle of the winter when the war was ending. The worst of the worst. And there were people that were prisoner of war camps. Yeah, they died. It was awful. But was this man a Nazi? Did he create, did he, did he, did he engage in war crimes? Well, when the British government took over, by fact, they tried him and they let him go. Then the Germans, the new German regime, who had a very high interest in finding anyone related to the Nazi party, tried and executed, tried him. He wasn't a Nazi. They gave him a pension. You don't give pensions to Nazis. The German government gave him, and still to this day, gave him a pension. He lived in Germany for 11 years after the war. Okay, 11 years. That's a long time to live somewhere. Didn't seem like he was in a hurry. He's not trying to get away from anything. Lived there 11 years. Now he's 30. Okay, he decides, I don't like it here so much. Kind of sucks, actually. I want to immigrate to Canada. He filed his paperwork and was received. He legally immigrated to Canada when he was 30 years old. Then two years later, he was like, you know, I heard the United States is pretty awesome. What do you say we go there? He's put in his paperwork. He was accepted and he legally immigrated to the United States. He settled in Tennessee. He had a wife. They had kids. Those kids had kids. He had grandkids and he lived 65 years of his life in eastern, small eastern city in Tennessee. And then Donald Trump gets elected. And there was some politics uh, around court uh, judges. And the president has the ability to assign this and that. And he picks some judges and he uh, and ICE, the, uh, you know, the people that were locking away people at the border, they weren't they weren't doing so hot. They weren't doing their job so hot and they needed a political win. And the anniversary of the Nuremberg trials was coming up. So some cruel fuck at ICE went through the paperwork and realized that he had a document showing that they found at the bottom of a submarine like two years prior to this, a record of this man having been present at this prisoner of war camp. And they used that as political propaganda to get this man kicked out of the country for a political win 
because ICE was making a bad name for itself because it was locking away children at the border. And some cruel motherfucker at ICE plucked this man out of obscurity, called him a Nazi, used him as a political prop, and kicked him out of a country where he is from. He's, he's lived two-thirds of his 90-year-old life in the United States. This man was a Tennessean. By, I'm like, in the article, it says this. And I am shocked by this because this is not what the headline suggested at all. In fact, this is something that is a tragedy if this turns out to be true, that these facts are true, not the headline. If these facts are true, this is a tragedy. This man is not from Germany. He is, but he's not. Do you understand? He has chosen the United States as his home. He built a family here. He was from Tennessee. Okay. And they plucked him and they sent him back to Germany to die away from his family in the middle of a pandemic. And I, dude, I don't do this often. I went on Instagram, livid, bro. And I went on a multi-tiered thing. Like, please tell me what I'm missing. And dude, the amount of insane things that people said to me, people that I've been friends with, people that I know that are smart people. I can't believe you fucking idiot. I can't believe this. You're a Nazi fucking sympathizer. Are you kidding me? Are you saying this is the hill that you want to die on? You're insane. And then the other side is like the highbrow. Like I consider myself a liberal, to be honest, the highbrow fucking intellectual. Like, well, it's just too complicated. You just don't understand the nuances of all of this. And I was like, holy fuck, people are actually being brainwashed. They saw the magic words and their critical thinking turned off. And it didn't matter what the facts were in that article. They're, they had already made their mind up that this was true. This is happening on a And this is just one article that I happened to catch, happened to read, happened to like do research on. And happened to be emotionally connected enough to do because he's he could have been my grandfather, you know what I mean, or my great grandfather. You know, he nothing about what he did was illegal, but there was a new thing about I don't know what they were able to pin him on other than this one shroud of evidence and getting kicked out. But I just was devastated, and I was even more devastated by the response. It was shocking how many people, and I asked them, "Did you read this?" Yeah, I read it. Hey, are you willing to have a conversation about this? Because I am I do not understand how you've come to this conclusion based on these facts. They wouldn't engage. They were completely turned off. And I from that moment was like, okay, I'm upset, but there's something bigger here than Brooks being upset as an individual. This is getting cranked up at a level that I didn't think was possible. When I was in graduate school, I took a marketing, an advanced level marketing class, and we talked about something called the nag factor. It's a common term used in the industry for commercials, essentially, that want to, they have to figure out the right level of nagging to incite in the child psychologically through the thing. So they'll nag their parents, their parent will purchase. And I was like, did I just hear correctly that we are subconsciously fucking with children to prod their parent into making a purchase from 
this? And this isn't even an, 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 an ethics class. This is just what it is. So when I'm sitting here now and I'm thinking about the past two years, one, the work that Enlifted is doing and that Dave and I are doing, never been more important than right now. Once you understand and can take control of your micro language environment, you will then see uh, other individuals and how their language is highlighting their state and also the world. And you'll also understand that there are people that understand this way, way, way better than you do. And they are fucking trying to get you to do what they want. And if you don't know this, you cannot defend yourself. You need to do this. You need to be able to defend yourself against words. Words are spells. That's why we call it spelling. You go to a spelling bee. Why? Because words and the symbols that we use to create words are literal spells. And there is a whole language of spells called the English language. And there's a whole language of spells called Mandarin. And there's a whole language of spells called German. But they are spells. And if you don't understand the spells, you can't dispel that which is cast upon you, either by yourself or an outside force. So what it highlighted to me is that my work as the messenger is to be able to give people access to this information, to contextualize very complicated information and deliver it in a very simple way. There are experts that are trying to influence your decision. And if you don't have the basics, you can't stop them. And me, I want to be sovereign, so I took control of my language. Me, I want to be sovereign, so I'm learning to grow food. Me, I want to be sovereign, so I take care of my body, because if I need to perform in an emergency situation, I want to feel good that I can carry my wife and my fucking two dogs out of there if I had to at the same damn time. Okay, and I want to feel good about that. That's what, to me, being sovereign is. It's not having all the answers. It's having the skills that allow you to center and seek the resources in the moment that you need to make the best decision that you can. And dude, it has been scary the last two years. It's scary. It's, it's continuing to be scary because the, the, the parties that are conspiring are doing it now in the open. We, don't long, we no longer have to theorize about certain things. They're saying it with their words in an observable way. So I'm going to take them at their word, and I'm going to choose to build the thing that I want separately. I'm going to, I'm going to choose to build the systems that I want to have in place separately. I'm not going to try to change the systems that are in place. No, no, no. They're too big to change. There's too many vested parties. There's too many people that are set to lose. Mm. Let's talk about one of my favorite conspiracies, reptiles and reptilians. You heard of this? I have David Ike. Yes, David. David Ike. I I've heard it. Yeah, I've heard a lot of David Ike. So I want to just I want to take something. This is a perfect podcast to do this. I want to take this and I want to break it down for people. Okay. The best place to hide the truth is in a lie. 
And the best place to hide a lie is in the truth. So let's take this claim. There is a reptilian race that is institutionally trying to enslave the world. And they're called reptiles. Well, what's true about that? And what's the lie? To me, the lie is that there is a, that these are not humans. Because as soon as you make them the other, it gives them an out. It takes away their responsibility. Well, that's just the way that they are as that reptilian race. No, 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 no. But what is true is that we have a part of our brain that we refer to as the reptilian brain. It is the instinctual survival part of the game and the people that have been expressing that at the highest level which is a super low vibration but they're expressing it hard they win the games because that's how the games are set up the games that we have are institutionally set to reinforce those behaviors of fight flight and survival because they pre-exist in our cosmic macro, the mammal, this survival and survival of the fittest, this, this reptilian brain. I mean, dude, before the United States had infrastructure and roads and, and really nice governments and wells and plumbing and all this shit, there was nothing. It was the wild. And people like uh, uh, Carnegie, people like Rockefeller, like them or not, those motherfuckers built the infrastructure of the United States by their selves. They visioned oil and trains and all this stuff, and they fucking built it. You understand? They had to survive. The game and what was rewarded in those games was the survival. The reptilian mind won those games. Well, we need new games. We need new games and systems that reward collaboration and love and sharing. Those are the games that we need. Those are not the ones that exist. So if you try to beat the uh, reptilian game, the reptilian mind with your human uh, mind, you lose. If you try to beat it with love, you lose because love doesn't get reinforced in those games. It doesn't get points. You don't get dollars for love. You get dollars for survival and mechanisms that bring that out. That's just a fact. The game has been set up to reward the reptilian behavior. That's the truth. If we look at that, then we have to first evaluate that in ourselves. We have to see it in ourselves first before we can actually see it in another person. It's those that will not see the reptile in themselves that project it onto other people. You must see your own survival side and honor it. And you have to understand that if you want to win this game, you're not going to do it by playing the game that's already being played. You have to create your own game. Mike Bledsoe has created his own game. Mike Bledsoe doesn't play by most of the games. There's still some of the games he has to play. He's got to play tax game. He's got to play that game. You know, So there's games that you can selectively opt into and be more like a conscientious objector, you know, but still like pay your taxes. You know what I mean? Um, not because uh, uh, you, you, you think that that's the best system, but because you are a 
pragmatic human and you know that if uh, the IRS catches you uh, not paying the taxes that they have laid upon you, they'll fucking put your ass in jail, period, period, period. So um, how can we win? We can take the sovereignty of our language. If you need help, you need a coach, reach out to me and Dave first. We'd love to help you. Um, taking sovereignty of your body being uh, because uh, on a, you know, we could go into how marketing companies have uh, infiltrated your mind to get you to buy food that isn't real. Uh, they've pumped it full of chemicals that are intentionally designed to alter your palate and make regular food unpalatable. So you will keep coming back and buying their food. Facts. That's a conspire. They are conspiring. Food companies are conspiring against you. Is this a theory? No. No conspiracy theories here. Only fucking facts. There are people that are conspiring against your best interest because it is in their best interest to win the game that rewards the reptilian behavior. Okay? They're also human. You're also reptile. And you know what? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe David Icke in, in his all wisdom is, is, is correct and they're actually fucking reptiles. Sure. Occam's razor means when there are two explanations to the same thing, the less complicated one is probably going to be the right one. And let me tell you what, things are going to get really complicated if you're telling me that there are reptiloids with flesh and and things that are somehow the same, but somehow not. And they present they are like that's a little complicated, but it's not complicated through science to know that I have a reptilian instinctual part of my brain that is the reason for most of the wars most of the altercations that i've ever had is the reason that i may get nervous before i have a tough conversation with my spouse or go into a jujitsu fight for whatever reason fight or flight sympathetic nervous system that is the reptilian brain it kicks on and how do we move from that where the breath is up in the chest to the low slow breathing like you said, taking responsibility for our language, which then reinforces the thoughts and imagination in what we use to create the stories that are the lens through which we perceive the world that then creates our reality. I would love it if you spoke briefly about the Chop Club for Men, how you and Chopper Dave are going about doing this for men and to dive a little deeper into the practical nature of your program. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to share this, and I don't take it lightly. Uh, I, so I thank you. Um, Dave and I have started a men's health mastery program. Uh, the simplest way to describe this is we, in one year, are going to teach you to master 12 key areas of your health, one key area at a time. So in a one-year program, you will focus on one main topic every month, and you will go through a masterclass that's 90 minutes long. You will also get an accountability call to see if you have been sticking to the routines that your coaches have been setting. You'll also get personal calls with me and Dave. And every month, you will get to master one piece of your health because, unfortunately, we can't master it all at one time, and the fastest way to get really good at something is to narrow your focus, narrow your intention. So we asked 50 men, we surveyed 50 men, what are the biggest things that are getting in your way from getting your health taken care of? They said five main things. Uh, and we asked them, what are the three biggest features that they want? And they said 
three things. They want accountability, they want education, and they want toolkits. And we're like, cool, that's what we're going to build. Uh, we're going to build this for you guys. So we have high touch accountability. You have a concierge that will check in on you and see how you're doing. You are going to have cutting edge education. If you've liked what you've heard on this podcast by far, so, so far, boy, oh boy, can we go into the weeds with you. Spirituality, finances, you want to talk about your religion programming, you want to talk about what's keeping you from losing weight, um, we, can, we got you covered. Cutting edge education, we're bringing you to, to our razor's edge. And the last is toolkits. And so a lot of our guys are spending time in G Suite. And so we built our toolkit in G Suite. And so by joining our program, you get access to Dave and I as coaches, you get a concierge, and every month you get a master's degree in a new health topic. You could stay with us after a year, don't have to, but I bet you want to, because it's just going to be better the next year and better the next year after that. And then, uh, we've set it up to where we can always be offering fresh information, and I'm super stoked. So if you are a professional man and you think that you are too busy to take care of your health, we specialize in helping you improve your health while you work. That is our promise. That is our guarantee. We go through our four steps every month and we keep you making progress. Mm, fuck yes. You, you learn to chop. That's, 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 that's the chops, man. You, you, you don't chop wood for this season. You chop wood for the next winter because the wood's got a, got a season. You know, it's got to dry out. Okay. So chopping is our theme for putting in the work that helps us succeed a year from now, five years from now, and 10 years from now, not just a week from now. Beautiful, brother. So where, where can people find out more? Where would you like to direct people online? Beautiful. Um, you can go to uh, Chop Club for Men on Instagram. You can also look me up at Brooks Meadows. Uh, the website is up, chopclubformen.com. I'm still figuring out the, if you don't type in the www, if you listen to this, just do me a favor, type in the www and then chopclubformen.com. Um, you can find us there. The links will link all in the show notes, but, uh, still figuring out some of the technical side, but we are ready to rock. Uh, our first masterclass will be May 12th. Um, so if you're interested in joining us before then you still have the opportunity to get in on the chops for May, all of May is about mindset. The whole month of May is about mindset. So if you want to learn about mindset from uh, a world-class story worker like Dave, or you want to break down some limiting beliefs with your boy Brooks here, that's what we're doing in May. And June is movement. So that's a little preview depending on when this comes out. So dope, brother. I, I imagine this, this program will be catalyzing for so many men to really step into who they are. You're coming back to that, you know, who, what is this highest version of me that says yes to everything that is in alignment with my values? Um, and you and Chopper Dave are the perfect men for the job. Sending you love, brother. I appreciate your time. This has been an awesome conversation. And we will certainly have many more like this. Looking forward to it, man. Peace, brother. Anytime. You got it.